This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of pediatric trauma evaluation and management from the pediatric section on orthobullets.com. Trauma is the most common cause of death in children greater than one years old. The mortality rate is approximately 20% in pediatric trauma. Central nervous system injuries have the highest overall morbidity and mortality. Spine fractures have the highest morbidity slash mortality among musculoskeletal injuries. Again, the mortality rate in pediatric trauma is approximately 20%. Central nervous system injuries have the highest overall morbidity and mortality. And spine fractures have the highest morbidity slash mortality among musculoskeletal injuries. Cervical spine injuries are more common in children less than 8 years old due to the fact that restraints do not fit young children. Keep in mind that falls and motor vehicle accidents are the most common mechanisms of pediatric trauma. As far as transport, occipital cutout is needed in the spine board when transporting children less than 8 years old, as a larger head size can flex an unstable cervical spine, leading to injury during transport. Now let's go over a few help tips in the setting of pediatric trauma. Braslow tape gives you estimates of medication doses, size of equipment, as well as shock voltage for a defibrillator. The rule of thumb for an endotracheal tube is age over 4 plus 4 or age plus 16 over 4 for an uncuffed tube. Blood pressure should be 80 plus age times 2. A chest tube should be 4 times the endotracheal tube size. Blood volume equals 70 times the weight in kilograms or 75 to 80 milliliters per kilogram. So again, Braslow tape gives you estimation of medication doses, size of equipment, as well as shock voltage for a defibrillator. The size of an uncuffed ET tube equals age over 4 plus 4 or age plus 16 over 4. Blood pressure should equal 80 plus the age of the patient times 2. Chest tube size should equal 4 times the size of the endotracheal tube. And blood volume equals 70 times the weight in kilograms or 75 to 80 milliliters per kilogram. Keep in mind that intraosseous lines are commonly needed due to the difficulty obtaining venous access. Remember that children may remain hemodynamically stable even after significant blood loss. And finally, remember that hypovolemic shock may result from inadequate fluid resuscitation. The quote-unquote triad of death reflects inadequate resuscitation and is characterized by acidosis, hypothermia, and coagulopathy. Again, the quote, triad of death reflects inadequate resuscitation and is characterized by acidosis, hypothermia, and coagulopathy. Now, let's talk a little bit about ATLS with children. You should always follow the ATLS protocol. Remember your ABCs, where A stands for airway, B stands for breathing, C stands for circulation, D stands for disability, and E stands for exposure. We'll go into each of these in more detail now. As far as airways, a smaller airway has a greater risk of airway obstruction with foreign bodies. Small amounts of swelling will result in a relatively greater reduction in airway diameter. Pediatric patients also have larger tongues and a floppy epiglottis. Other things to keep in mind include that pediatric patients have a larger occiput, which flexes the head forward when placed supine on a flat surface. So to achieve a neutral position, it may be necessary to lift the chin or place a pad under the torso of the infant or have a head cut out, as we previously mentioned. Finally, keep in mind that the larynx is higher and more anterior in pediatric patients. It sits at the level of the C2-C3 vertebral body in the young child compared with C6-C7 in the adult. 
Remember that positioning of the larynx makes its visualization in the pediatric airway more difficult than in the adult. Moving on to breathing, remember that the most common cause of cardiorespiratory arrest is hypoventilation. Again, the most common cause of cardiorespiratory arrest is hypoventilation. Remember that in pediatric patients, the ribs are positioned more horizontally. So with inspiration, the ribs only move up and not up and out like the adult rib cage. This limits the capacity to increase tidal volumes. Pediatric patients are also known for diaphragmatic breathing, and they have fewer type 1 fibers in respiratory muscles. So specifically, there are a smaller number of fatigue-resistant type 1 fibers in their respiratory muscles, and therefore they exhaust more quickly than adults. Finally, respiratory rate varies with age. So remember that higher oxygen demand equals higher respiratory rates. Moving on to circulation, the initial bolus for a pediatric patient should be 20 milliliters per kilogram of normal saline. Again, the initial bolus should be 20 milliliters per kilogram of normal saline. After two boluses, you should then give 10 milliliters per kilogram of packed red blood cells. Remember that the blood volume is relatively larger in pediatric patients, but the absolute volume is smaller. So small volumes of blood will constitute significant blood loss in small children. For example, a 100-milliliter hemorrhage experienced by a 5-kilogram child represents the loss of approximately 10% of their total blood volume. Systemic vascular resistance is lower in pediatric patients, and remember that this increases from birth to adulthood. Hypotension is a late sign in pediatric patients as they remain normotensive until they are losing large intravascular volumes. Specifically, loss of 25-30% to 30% of blood volume will occur before signs of shock. Pediatric patients have smaller vessels and more subcutaneous tissue. Therefore, it's difficult to obtain vascular access due to small veins and increased subcutaneous tissue. Since IV access is more difficult in pediatric patients, consider intraosseous access. Moving on to disability, remember that pediatric patients have open sutures and the presence of fontanelles. They have thinner cranial bones and therefore do not afford as much protection to the brain tissue. Pediatric patients also have heads that are relatively larger. Therefore, they have a higher center of gravity, and this corresponds to a higher incidence of head and neck trauma. Finally, as far as exposure, pediatric patients have a relatively small size, and they tend to have large heads and organs compared to their overall size. Pediatric patients also have a higher basal metabolic rate and surface area. Therefore, there is greater consumption of oxygen and other metabolites, there is higher respiratory and heart rates, and a larger surface area to body mass ratio results in greater heat loss. Pediatric patients have increased glucose requirements but decreased glycogen stores. Therefore, they have higher metabolic rates and small glycogen stores. As far as pediatric scoring systems, the ones to know include the Pediatric Trauma Score and the Pediatric Glasgow Coma Scale. The patient features in a pediatric trauma score include size in kilograms, airway, systolic blood pressure, mental status, the presence or absence of an open wound, and the presence or absence of an extremity fracture. Patients will get two points for a size greater than 20 kilograms, two points for patients that are awake, two points for patients that have no open wound, and two points for patients that have no extremity fracture. Patients will get one point if they have a size between 10 to 20 kilograms. They will get one point for a maintainable airway. They will get one point for a systolic blood pressure between 50 to 90. They will get one point for an obtunded mental status. They will get one point for a minor open wound and one point for a closed extremity fracture. 
They will get negative one point for patients that are less than 10 kilograms, airways that are non-maintainable, systolic blood pressures that are less than 50, a comatose mental status, a major open wound, as well as open or multiple extremity fractures. A pediatric trauma score of less than zero equals 100% mortality. A pediatric trauma score of less than zero corresponds to 100% mortality. A pediatric trauma score of 1 to 4 equals a 40% mortality. And a pediatric trauma score of 5 to 8 corresponds to a 7% mortality. A pediatric trauma score of less than or equal to 8 should be sent to a designated pediatric trauma center. Moving on to the pediatric Glasgow Coma Scale, a GCS of less than 8 correlates with a higher rate of mortality. The pediatric Glasgow Coma Scale is scored between 3 and 15, 3 being the worst and 15 being the best. It is composed of three parameters, best eye response, best verbal response, and best motor response. For best eye response, you will get one point for no eye opening, two points for eye opening to pain, three points for eye opening to verbal command, and four points for eye opening spontaneously. As far as best verbal response, you will get one point for no vocal response, two points for a patient that is inconsolable or agitated, you will get three points for a patient that is inconsistently consolable and or moaning, four points for a patient that cries but is consolable and or has inappropriate interactions, and five points for a patient that smiles, oriented to sounds, and follows objects as well as interacts. Finally, as far as best motor response, patients will get one point for no motor response, two points for extension to pain, three points for flexion to pain, four points for withdrawal from pain, five points for localizing pain, and six points for obeying commands. Remember that oxygen saturation at presentation and GCS 72 hours post-injury are both prognostic of long-term neurologic recovery. Finally, let's quickly go over some injuries, specifically head and neck injuries, peripheral nerve injuries, and multi-organ failure. As far as head and neck injuries, the intracranial pressure can be elevated by pain, and it's possible to decrease the intracranial pressure by fracture fixation. Remember that heterotopic ossification is more common following traumatic brain injury, as there is increased serum alkaline phosphatase that heralds the onset of heterotopic ossification. NSAID prophylaxis is indicated in these situations. Again, increased serum alkaline phosphatase heralds the onset of heterotopic ossification, and NSAID prophylaxis is indicated in these situations. Peripheral nerve injuries are more common in closed fractures. Again, peripheral nerve injuries are most common in closed fractures. And remember, you should obtain an EMG if there is no return of function two to three months after injury. Again, obtain an EMG if there is no return of function two to three months after injury. Multi-organ failure occurs early after admission and affects all organ systems. Again, multi-organ failure occurs early after admission and affects all organ systems. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, which of the following correctly describes multi-organ failure in pediatric trauma patients? And the choices are one, occurs early after admission and all organ systems are affected simultaneously. Two, occurs early after admission and cardiovascular system is affected first. 3. Occurs within 12 to 24 hours after admission, and the cardiovascular system is affected first. 4. Occurs around 48 hours after admission, and all organ systems are affected simultaneously. And 5. Occurs around 48 hours after admission, and the cardiovascular system is affected first.
The correct answer to this question is one occurs early after admission and all organ systems are affected simultaneously. So to quickly review, multi-organ failure in pediatric trauma patients usually occurs early, that is within the first 24 hours after admission and affects almost all organ systems simultaneously. The timing of multi-organ failure in pediatric trauma patients differs from that in adult trauma patients. Multi-organ failure in children often occurs early after admission during resuscitation and affects all organs almost simultaneously, whereas organ failure in adults begins 48 hours after the injury and occurs sequentially, starting with the lungs. Additionally, the rate of acute lung injury has been found to be almost six times lower in children than in adults. Pandya et al. performed a review of the pediatric polytrauma patient. They report that the orthopedic surgeon plays an important role in managing hemodynamic instability, vascular insult, and neurologic damage in the child with multiple injuries. They conclude that the pattern of multi-system organ failure in children differs than that of adults. Calkins et al. performed a retrospective study to determine the incidence, course, and severity of multi-organ failure in children. They found that the incidence of post-injury multi-organ failure is rare, that is in 3% of patients. They also found that the mortality rate was 17% for this cohort. They conclude that the incidence of post-injury multi-organ failure in the child is less than the adult, and it is less severe when it occurs. Moving on to the next question. A four-year-old girl is involved in a tobogganing accident. She has a fluctuating level of consciousness and requires urgent transport to the local pediatric trauma center. When transporting a pediatric trauma patient, which of the following factors should be considered? And the choices are one, a pelvic binder is required in all pediatric trauma patients. Two, intraosseous cannulation is the first choice for access in patients with hypovolemia. Three, modified spinal boards are required for pediatric trauma patients with a suspected spine injury. Four, intubation is required in pediatric patients when the Glasgow Coma Score is less than 12. And five, the nasal cannula airways are required in pediatric patients with head injuries. The correct answer to this question is three, modified spinal boards are required for pediatric trauma patients with a suspected spine injury. So young children have a disproportionate head and chest, forcing the neck into flexion if placed on a standard spine board. To avoid excessive flexion, pediatric trauma patients less than eight years of age with a suspected spine injury should be immobilized on a modified spine board that either raises the chest or lowers the occiput. To quickly review, trauma is the most common cause of death in children. Pediatric polytrauma has a mortality rate of 20%. Spine injuries are associated with the highest morbidity and mortality among musculoskeletal injuries. It's essential to immobilize the spine immediately and initiate rapid evaluation and management according to the ATLS protocol. Shouten et al. discussed the management of the spine-injured patient. Initial management should focus on evaluation and management of the ABCs, that is airway, breathing, and circulation, according to the ATLS protocol. An accurate, complete spine and neurologic assessment should be performed once the ABCs are secured. K and Skaggs reviewed the management of pediatric polytrauma. They highlight the need for thorough evaluation for neurological and musculoskeletal injuries and orthopedic care to facilitate early mobilization. Moving on to the next question. A five-year-old female presents after being struck by a vehicle in her driveway. She has multiple injuries, including a right femur fracture, an open book pelvis injury, and bilateral clavicle fractures. Peripheral IV access is not able to be obtained in the trauma bay after multiple attempts, and the patient's blood pressure is 110 over 70. Which of the following is the most appropriate method to obtain vascular access in this patient? 
and the choices are 1. Placement of an intraosseous infusion device. 2. Peripherally inserted central catheter or a PIC placement in the upper extremity. 3. Femoral venous cutdown. 4. Subclavian central line placement. And 5. Continued attempts at obtaining peripheral IV access. The correct answer to this question is 1. Placement of an intraosseous infusion device. So intraosseous infusion is the most appropriate method of obtaining venous access in a normotensive pediatric trauma patient who is unable to obtain a peripheral IV line. Intraosseous lines can be rapidly and easily inserted, have low complication rates, and are safe to use with resuscitation medications. Guy et al. evaluated intraosseous line indications, insertion sites, complications, and outcomes in 27 pediatric trauma patients. They reported minimal intraosseous-related complications and high success of obtaining peripheral access with this technique. They concluded that intraosseous infusion is a rapid, safe, and simple method of obtaining short-term vascular access in both critically ill and injured children when venous access is not rapidly obtainable. Orlowski et al. performed an animal study to determine the comparative pharmacokinetics of six emergency drugs administered through different routes, that is central intravenous, peripheral IV, and intraosseous, in a randomized sequence. The authors found that the intraosseous route of administration was comparable with the central and peripheral intravenous routes for all of the emergency drugs and solutions studied, and that it's a clinically feasible alternative when intravenous access will be critically delayed. Moving on to the next question. A four-year-old child involved in a motor vehicle collision sustains multiple injuries including splenic rupture, bilateral open femur fractures, lumbar burst fracture with compression of the neural elements, and a closed head injury requiring a ventriculostomy. Of these injuries, which is likely to cause the greatest long-term morbidity? And the choices are one, traumatic brain injury, two, peripheral nerve injury, three, vertebral column injury, four, intra-abdominal injury, and five, open fractures. The correct answer to this question is one, traumatic brain injury. So long-term morbidity from trauma in children is most commonly secondary to central nervous system injury, including traumatic brain injury. Key et al. reported closed head injuries are the most common cause of long-term disability in children following polytrauma. They also note that the death rate in pediatric polytrauma patients is most closely correlated with the presence and severity of traumatic brain injury. Gladden et al. emphasized that appropriate orthopedic treatment is important to facilitate early mobilization and care of these injured children and discuss the current management recommendations for pediatric polytrauma patients. Moving on to the next question. How many milliliters of intravascular blood volume are present per kilogram of body weight in a healthy 5-year-old child? And the choices are 1, 40 to 50 milliliters, 2, 75 to 80 milliliters, 3, 90 to 95 milliliters, 4, 110 to 120 milliliters, and 5, 140 to 150 milliliters. The correct answer to this question is 2, 75 to 80 milliliters. So pediatric patients have an approximate blood volume of 75 to 80 milliliters per kilogram. Although blood volume estimations based on body weight lack precision compared to other invasive methods of measuring, a rough estimate of blood volume for pediatric patients of this age group is 75 to 80 milliliters per kilogram. In trauma patients, the most common type of shock is hypovolemic shock due to blood loss. A patient can lose up to 30% of blood volume before becoming hypotensive due to compensatory mechanisms that maintain blood pressure, such as peripheral vasoconstriction and increased heart rate. 
one sign of early hypovolemia is a narrowed pulse pressure. That is a decreased difference between the systolic and diastolic blood pressure, which can be noted with only 15% blood loss. K et al. provide a review of the evaluation and management of pediatric trauma patients. They note that pediatric trauma is most commonly blunt trauma and has a high incidence of internal bleeding. They recommend immediate assessment of circulation and initial resuscitation with crystallized solution. They caution against overhydrating patients with head injuries due to the possibility of increasing cerebral edema. Moving on to the next question. A nine-year-old boy sustained a traumatic brain injury and right lower extremity trauma in an accident involving a motor vehicle and a pedestrian. Initial evaluation in the emergency department reveals an obtunded patient who is breathing spontaneously and withdraws appropriately to painful stimuli. After initial resuscitation and stabilization, a CT scan reveals a right parietal intracranial hemorrhage. Radiographs of the swollen right thigh show a mid-shaft transverse femoral fracture. Management of the fractured femur should ultimately consist of, and the choices are 1, immediate hip spica casting, 2, close reduction and percutaneous pin fixation supplemented by a hip spica cast, 3, placement in 90-90 traction after insertion of a distal femoral traction pin, 4, insertion of a reamed antegrade intramedullary nail starting at the piriformis fossa, stopping the nail short of the distal femoral growth plate, and five, close reduction and stabilization using retrograde flexible intramedullary nails. The correct answer to this question is five, close reduction and stabilization using retrograde flexible intramedullary nails. So a child with a traumatic brain injury generally achieves significant neurologic recovery and has a more favorable prognosis than an adult. Early stabilization of fractures facilitates transportation of the child for diagnostic tests and decreases the incidence of shortening and malunion. Surgical treatment of the fracture is indicated when cerebral perfusion pressure has stabilized. Casting or traction is not the most appropriate treatment of a femoral fracture in a child of this age with a brain injury. Fracture reduction is difficult to maintain if the brain injury leads to spasticity and transportation within the hospital for tests is more difficult. Insertion of a reamed antegrade intramedullary nail inserted at the piriformis fossa is associated with a small risk of osteonecrosis of the femoral head. The transverse femoral fracture in this patient is ideally suited for stabilization with flexible intramedullary nails. Lee Gear and Associates treated 123 femoral shaft fractures in children with flexible intramedullary nails, including 35 patients with head injury. In one patient with hemiplegia and urinary tract infection, a deep wound infection developed, necessitating nail removal. The remaining patients all healed without major complications. Heinrich and Associates treated 78 diaphyseal femoral fractures with flexible intramedullary nails, including 14 with head injury. No major complications were reported, and all fractures healed. And moving on to the final question. Which of the following injuries is associated with the highest risk of morbidity and mortality in a pediatric trauma patient? And the choices are 1, pelvic fracture, 2, scapula fracture, 3, spine fracture, 4, femur fracture, and 5, tibia fracture. The correct answer to this question is 3, spine fracture. So Buckley et al. reviewed 805 pediatric trauma patients who sustained 953 fractures and dislocations to determine the relationship between skeletal injury and trauma score, injury severity score, length of hospital stay, hospital charges, and mortality. The femur was the most commonly fractured bone, and overall mortality was 3% in the group studied. 
the trauma patients with associated scapula or pelvic fractures had an 11% mortality rate, whereas those patients with spine fractures had a 16% mortality rate. Femur and tibia fractures had a mortality rate of 2% and 1% respectively. The authors concluded that central musculoskeletal injuries, that is spine, clavicle-slash-scapula, and pelvis, were associated with the longest hospital stays and intensive care unit admissions, as well as the highest injury severity scores, hospital charges, and mortality rates. Tepas et al. reviewed the records of 4,400 children with traumatic head injuries and compared them to head injuries reported from an adult trauma registry. They found that overall children have a lower mortality rate than adults and that central nervous system injury is the predominant and most common cause of pediatric traumatic death. That's all for this review about pediatric trauma evaluation and management. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that this podcast is designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.